Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 373, The Zweig Group Story, with founder and chairman Mark Zweig. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsor, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com. Yes, and it's all for free at RCAT.com. Mark Zweig, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me here, Mark. And and I especially appreciate that you can pronounce my name properly. It is it is an honor, my friend. It is it's exciting to have you on the show. Um, Mark is an entrepreneur and the founder of two Inc. 500 5,000 companies. He's the founder of the Zweig Group and consulting, uh, research, publishing, media, training companies serving the AEC industry. I'm sure you've heard of Mark and I'm sure you've heard of Zweig Group there leading the way, right? And in, in leading management uh, and business expert in architecture and the in, in the en- engineering industry, skilled in mergers and acquisitions, startups, leadership, everything, everything business. Since 2005, he's been teaching entrepreneurship at the Sam Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. As a real estate developer, Mark at Z- Mark Zweig Incorporated a design-build contracting company named to the Inc. 5000. He's been doing that since 
2014. I want to talk about that. Designer, builder of multiple award-winning residential and commercial projects. Uh, sounds like he's having a lot of fun. <laughs> Author of 13 books, I think, right? 13 books? Something like that, yeah. Yep. I, I, <laughs> I read somewhere it was 13. Your notes say 12. I think it's 13. Writer of the Zweig Letter, uh, weekly contributor to the Walton College Insights, monthly contributor to the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, speaker. I can go on and on and on. Go look him up if you haven't heard of him. You know who Mark Zweig is. Um, Mark, I want to learn more about where you started all of this. So I'd love to learn your origin story. Go back to where you discovered your passion for what you do today and share your journey from that point to where you find yourself at this moment. Wow, thanks for that great introduction, uh, Mark. Um, you didn't mention the fact that I've had three wives and I have <laughs> four daughters and one stepdaughter, but uh, we, that's, that's another part of the story. Uh, no, my... my uh, I guess my interest in this in this whole field really started when I was a, a little kid. I was probably eight or nine years old, and I used to go to the library and check out books with house plans in them. And I know you're passionate about residential architecture. Yeah. And, and that's what you do, part of what you do. Um, and I thought I wanted to be an architect. I would draw those uh, I would draw floor plans on graph paper and one square was um, one peg with my Legos. And then I would build the, whatever I designed out of Legos, um, including all the interior partitioning. I guess if it was drawn to scale, the, the walls were two feet thick. But, um, but anyway, um, that's how I got interested in it. And that's, I a true, thought, that's a true architect's origin story. I've heard that it? story many times. <laughs> Well, uh, from from architects doing very similar things, including myself. Yeah, I th so I thought I wanted to be an architect, and then I got seduced away by the world of business when I started working at the local bike shop at twelve or thirteen. My dad told me, he goes, "Go down there." He goes, "You're good at working on these bikes," and he said, "Go down there and tell them you'll work for free for a month, and then if they like you, they can pay you a buck an hour." And so I did, and I knew these people, you know, because I was always in there buying bicycle parts. What What did your dad do? My dad was, he was Don Draper um, in the advertising business, and he yeah. was he was a Don Draper-esque figure. He and another guy had an ad agency. They started in the late 40s in St. Louis, and, and he became very successful with that and then got disillusioned by it, and in the late 60s, uh, got into some all kinds of other things, management consulting for various religious orders. And he was quite a character. My dad lived to be 96 and uh, was a very ins inspirational guy himself. But so I started working at these bike shops and, um, and I just got to where I made so much money. I, I, I eventually worked for three different owners in the St. Louis area. One of them had, uh, it was about 10 stores in total between the three of them. And the last guy I worked for was a fellow named Don Humphreys, who was a super entrepreneur. Yeah. He eventually got to where he had 10 bike shops and we sold uh, products that we had made in, in Taiwan uh, at our retail stores and also through a catalog. And uh, I learned a lot from him. But the bottom line was, um, you know, by the time I was 17, I was making six, $700 a week. 
this is in the mid seventies and yeah, a lot of money I, for a kid. It was a lot. I mean, I always had three cars and two motorcycles. I could eat out anytime I wanted. I had, you know, all the money I needed to go to college saved up. Um, I, I know, I think I had around 4,000 when I started college and it was about 290 a semester back then at Southern Illinois. So I, I discovered I, I like business. And so I did get a business degree, did that in three years. Then I went on and got my MBA while I was in school, I did a variety of things, including selling bicycles uh, to people in my dorm and having them sent down via Greyhound bus that I got from the shop that I worked at. You know, I, I bought, uh, excuse me, I sold cars that we put together from the local junkyard. I would go find the best wrecks that I thought could be rebuilt. They would do it, and then I would sell those on the student union bulletin board. And, uh, and then eventually I had a motorcycle shop in, uh, college with uh, a finance professor and another friend of mine, he, the finance professor put up the cash and gave us a, a beach oil station to work out of. And, and we got an Indian moped franchise and we sold used motorcycles that we would buy from, you know, the dealers, the ones that they didn't want or, or from individuals and, uh, did that. And then, uh, so I got my MBA when, you know, basically went, uh, took one summer off between undergrad and grad school, got a scholarship, a grad assistantship and got my MBA. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do, but, um, in 1980, as I was graduating, my dad had a friend who had a small consulting business that was primarily did retained executive search. Uh, but they did a few other things as well. And uh, it had seven employees at the time. And, and uh, they served the construction and real estate development industries. And they had occasional opportunities to work with architects and engineers. But the sort of conventional wisdom in this place was, well, they can't make a decision and they won't pay good fees. You know, so they all worked with developers and contractors. and. Uh, I gravitated toward the AE side with my interest in it from the time I was a kid and an interest in, in design and, and, uh, and I liked the people, you know, I thought they were intelligent and ethical and, and interesting and nice and creative. And so I built myself a little business inside this company. I was there three years. I had maybe three or four people working for me when I went to work for one of my clients, which was an, uh, an engineering firm in Memphis. And we got into the architectural business while I was there. Really shortly after I arrived, we bought an architecture firm in, in Nashville. And then that didn't work out. And we divested ourselves of that. And I hired some architects from various companies there in Memphis and in we wouldn't admit we were in the architectural business. We, we hired one as the head of quality control and the other guy was the head of our Intergraph CAD system. But anyway, I, uh, I did, I did well there. I was the head of marketing and human resources and an interim project manager and an interim CAD manager and on the board and became an owner, um, at the age of 26. I think I borrowed, 67 or 68,000 dollars 
at Union Planners Bank to buy my my ownership there. They'd had a bad year thanks to the purchase of the Intergraph system and lost $400,000. So they went out on the floor to several of us younger people and said, hey, if you want to buy ownership, here's your chance. So I did. Um, you know, I think the interest rate was like 13 or 14 percent. I paid for that, but um, bought my ownership and 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 uh, was well rewarded for that. Um, they, you know, the my boss liked it and gave me a raise right away because I was willing to step up. And then I was there a few years, and then I went to work for another company that was a former client of mine in uh, Fort Worth, and that was a company called Carter and Burgess. Um, they had hired another of my clients who was the senior vice president and head of engineering at 3D International, a guy named Russell Laird. Russell kept trying to get me to go to work at Carter and Burgess. He'd call me every month or so, and I'd say, nah, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm happy here. And finally, he he convinced me to go there for an interview, and I did, and, and uh, ended up making me a job offer I couldn't refuse. So we moved uh, to the DFW area and uh, I, I worked for Carter and Burgess for, for three years. And uh, in any case, uh, it was doing, a, doing all business management work. Yes. Uh, again, I started as the head of HR. I ended up the head of marketing as well. And, um, you know, for me, when I was in, in human resources, I wasn't your typical human resources person. I was a super, super aggressive recruiter which was really my thing. And, uh, you know, I did, did more than that, obviously, but, um, that got me, you know, into selling. And so they figured I could sell services as well. So I ended up the head of marketing in, in both of those companies entering, um, at a different position. So anyway, that takes us up through the end of 88. And, uh, at the time, and forgive me if this is too long, no, I'm, I'm enjoying it. The, the, uh, so at the time, if you remember, uh, and I'm a little older than you, Mark, but you may still recall the show. It was called 30 something. Yeah. I remember 30 something. And my then wife who, uh, she and I moved in together at age 18, by the way, in, in college, but, uh, she, uh, she uh, loved that show. And so of course it was kind of a chick show one might say. But of course, I got drafted into watching it with her. And, you know, I, I, I remember thinking, gosh, these guys have such a great lifestyle. They live in Philadelphia. They're in these cool old houses. They've got an office that has, you know, interior brick walls. And they started their own company, the Michael right. and Elliott Company. And they could play basketball in their office. And, and I thought, man, that looks good. And meanwhile, here we are living in Solis, Arlington, Texas. And it's hot and, you know, we think we want to buy another house. We bought an old house and fixed it up and, and we thought we wanted to buy another house and we discovered we couldn't even find anything that we wanted, even if, you know, if we were to move and uh, started thinking, gosh, I'd really like to live in Philadelphia or Boston. My, uh, I had two siblings went to Harvard. My brother went to undergrad there and my sister went to grad school there for a period in, uh, anyway, I thought, man, this is so cool. Um, uh, Boston's the greatest place uh, ended up 
to make a long story short, you know, during the time I was at Carter and Burgess, I started writing for another newsletter uh, that you might know of called PSMJ. Sure. And eventually um, Frank Stasiowski contacted me and, and uh, asked me if I wanted to come to work for him as executive vice president of PSMJ. I did. Uh, we packed up, we moved to the Boston area in January of, of uh, let's see, when was it? Uh, I guess it was December of 88. Uh, no, I take it back. It was uh, uh, December of 87, January of 88. And uh, it just didn't work out. Uh, I, I won't get into all the details, but six and a half months later, it was not what we expected. And, and you know, to, to be truthful, I had a business plan to start what eventually became uh, Zweig Group. It um, started as Mark Zweig and Associates and then became Zweig White and then Zweig Group. But so I had this business plan I developed for Mark Zweig and Associates back in 1986, November of 86. And uh, I thought, you know, if we don't, things don't work out in the Boston area, we'll either start our own business or I'll go to one of the finest schools I can get into and get my PhD and become a college professor. Well, let's just say due to the sudden nature of my unemployment, uh, we decided to, uh, <laughs> I've heard the story. I've heard you tell the story before. You can look it up on the internet if anybody wants to hear the rest well, of it. <laughs> anyway, decided to, to start, you know, my own business. And, uh, and that's how Mark's Wagon Associates came to be. And I got three clients right away, including Frank Stasiowski. He was actually one of my early clients. Uh, Carter and Burgess was a client and then another company in the Boston area called VHB. And those were my three clients. And, uh, at the time, you know, I was doing pretty well money-wise and, uh, before I was unemployed, that is. And uh, so, you know, we, we decided that uh, I was making a, over 100000 a year, and we decided we'd live on $2,000 a month and put the rest back into our business. And uh, so initially, I think we had about 8000 coming in from these various clients, or 8500 And uh, my then wife said to me, you got to hire Fred White. Fred uh, was someone I hired at PSMJ in, uh, as a graphic designer when he was in school getting his uh, fine arts degree from Emerson College. Absolutely brilliant guy. And uh, he and I were like the odd couple, you know, completely different, but we both had the same idea about how we could grow the business that we did grow. Uh, and eventually, what was, what was the, far, the, the focus of Zwei Group from the beginning? The focus, well, it, it was Mark's Wagon Associates. The focus then was basically the same as it is now. I mean, our mission was to help make our architecture and engineering clients more successful. Um, today, they, they use some different language about elevating the industry, but, you know, that was it. So anything that could help these people uh, with their business to be more successful, if we could do it, we did it. And, um, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, well, it's sort of, <laughs> your your mission is is very similar. Very similar. You narrowed it to to smaller architecture firms, right? Uh, is my understanding. Um, That's correct. 
we were a little broader. Uh, you know, I think our, our, our sort of sweet spot for clients for the bulk of the firm's existence was companies that had maybe 50 to a hundred or more up to maybe two or 3000 smaller than that. Um, they didn't think they could afford us and larger than that. Um, you know, they thought they knew everything. So they were the smaller, large firms was your, yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we still work for startups and things like that too, but I mean, that wasn't the thrust. But uh, in any case, it was a successful enterprise. I mean, you know, you know, uh, without, you know, boring you with all the details. I mean, we grew the business uh, like crazy, um, got on the Inc. 500 list, uh, fastest growing privately held companies twice. And uh, we had a really successful business that was always profitable, started with a thousand dollars. Uh, you know, at its peak, uh, when, when we had the magazine group and trade show group and other things, it it hit about 19 million in revenue, (coughs) excuse me. But the, the, uh, the business, uh, was very successful and, uh, you know, things were going well, we had six or seven offices and, and, uh, it was pretty exciting. How did you, how did you market that. that firm? How did, how did clients come to you? We had a really simple strategy, and that was we spent a fortune on direct mail and PR. Those were the two things that we did. We had a great mailing list. We had a a database that Fred had engineered along with a guy named Mike Meachin, and it ran on a wide area network. It was on every computer, had every single purchase, contact history, recruitment, M&A, uh, attend, you know, conference attendee, seminar attendee, subscriber. We had all of them in there and all their history organized by firm and then location and then person and then buying history. And it got up to where we had several hundred thousand people in that by the time we sold the company in 2004. Um, so yeah, that was it. And then the other thing we did from a PR standpoint, we sent out three press releases a week to a press list of five or 600 names. And that would get us between 15 and 20 articles published every single month. And the combination of those two things, you know, as far as the direct mail goes, I'll, I'll tell you what our strategy was. Um, at the time, we were about 40% what we called products. And that was seminars, newsletters, books, surveys, things like that. And we were 60% consulting. And we spent roughly 40% of revenue in the, uh, from the products business on marketing, on the direct mail. And uh, so it represented maybe 16% of the overall company's revenue went to marketing. And every year we would jack up that volume and that expense. And, you know, if if we cranked it up by 30%, we grow by roughly 30%. We did that 13 years in a row, 30% plus annual growth rate. And it was amazing. You know, I taught stat in grad school for a short time and uh, I learned about probability theory. And believe me, we use that in our business. Once you have hundreds of thousands or millions of independent events, you know, you can pretty well tell what the results are going to be. 
Right. So you send out a certain number of direct mail items, you know that you're going to get a response and end up signing contracts for a certain percentage of those. Exactly. In, In this case, you know, it was the products business, but all that promotion of the products business generated a tremendous awareness of our company. And that in turn got us consulting. Got it. All right. So, the, and, so you marketed the products and then the products marketed the consulting. That's it. And I mean, we never made a cold call to anybody. We always just sat there and harvested leads. And the company still functions like that today. Although instead of direct mail, it's e-marketing. That's interesting. So, <clears throat> so, the, so you would market the products. The products would bring in 40% of your revenue, but mm-hmm. would also bring in the rest of the 60% of revenue because you didn't need to market the consulting side, the, the products were doing that. Exactly. And, you know, and then just crank it up when you wanted to grow. And that's what we did. We just ramped it up every year and we just kept growing. And I mean, we did a lot of other things in the company that I just gave a talk. Um, let's see last week on innovation for a class that was just started this year um, at the university of Arkansas. It, it has engineering students in it. And, um, it's an honors class in innovation. And I, and so I talked a little bit about, you know, the innovation that we used in the products and the innovation that we use in terms of business practices. And it was pretty interesting to me as I, you know, I, I hadn't really reflected back on that and, and sort of, you know, wrote, written down what we had done in, uh, we did have some, some pretty innovative business practices at the time, especially considering we were, you know, in the started in the late eighties and growing through the nineties. I mean, we had open book management. That was a big part of our business where we gave a report to every employee, usually by the fourth or fifth of the month, following the month ending, very, very quick accounting. And we told them everything about how we were performing. And there would be a a little interpretation from me with that report. Uh, We paid 25% of our cash basis profits out to all employees on a monthly basis. So if you were there at the beginning of the month uh, and you were there at the end of the month, you got your pro rata share, which was your salary as a percentage of the total salaries. That was the percentage of the pool that you got of that 25% cash basis bonus pool. That was very motivational, encouraged people to bring the cash in and do the right thing. Uh, We valued our stock uh, on the basis uh, uh, of uh, percentage of revenue. So a lot of people would be scared of that. It's like, oh my gosh, but what if you're not profitable? We were always profitable. We said, management's gonna make this place profitable. Don't worry about that, but we need you to grow the revenue stream. It's a whole lot easier being profitable when your revenues are growing faster than your costs. And so we were, you know, chronically understaffed and, and, uh, and, and so we, we made money in, uh, because of that. But, uh, in any case, I wanted the owners to push, to grow the company because I knew as an entrepreneurial venture, our value would be greatly impacted by our revenue growth rate. And, uh, you know, it, more so than a multiple of EBIT, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. I mean, all you got to do is look at the at the Internet companies to to find out that profitability doesn't necessarily right. uh, create the value. It's the revenue growth. 
Right. So that's what we were interested in. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsor, ArtCat. As more businesses and tenants demand green design in their buildings, LEED certification is more important than ever. And while ArtCat is known for being red, you know, with their big red A, they can help you go green. ArtCat provides thousands of LEED reports from building product manufacturers on how their products can help you make the green choice that's right for your project. Head over to rcat.com and find the information you need for LEED. rcat.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com. Please visit rcat today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. What kind of products were you, what you, were you selling? Well, that was part of the innovation. You know, we started, uh, when we started the the company, I had a non-compete with newsletters because I was working for PSMJ as the editor. That ended six or seven or eight months into my, my new business venture. And so I had a three-year non-compete. So we started a free newsletter uh, that went out monthly and... Uh, but once the, the moment that non-compete was up, we started the paid version of the newsletter. I think we had 2,300 free subscribers that were getting it monthly. We went out with a $195 subscription offer, if I recall, and uh, we got about 500 subscribers. So it was like a $100,000 boom boost right away. Yeah, that's, um, that's a lot of money for a newsletter. Yeah, that was a good start. Uh, you yeah. know, that, that business eventually grew to a business that was doing seven figures alone. Uh, it's hard to do a paid newsletter today though, with the internet right? and all the free, good free content that's out there. But anyway, and then we started surveys and instead of doing what everybody else in this business does, you know, they want to do a survey. So they do one on financial performance or they want to do uh, a survey. So they do salaries. We didn't do that. We did new stuff that nobody would ever done before. The first one I think was the principal survey. And we asked a lot of questions about, you know, how large is your office and have you been divorced and what's your political party affiliation and what kind of vehicle you drive? What color is it? I mean, we had all kinds of info in there. Uh, do you feel like any of your fellow principals are just coasting to retirement? Uh, that was a great question um, and got us immediate press because I could write the press release before we even got the results back. You know, X percent of design right. firm principals feel their fellow partners are coasting to retirement. This is a huge problem. Um, so, and we did valuation, privately held, uh, you know, valuation of privately held AE firms. Uh, we did one on satellite offices where we, sent a questionnaire out to the uh, satellite office managers and the corporate managers and asked them about each other. So the whole thrust was doing stuff that other people hadn't done. Our newsletter, you know, all the newsletters were monthly and there were a bunch of them out there. We went every other week and then right away, as soon as we could, we went weekly. So we were in people's face weekly as opposed right. to once a month. Yep. You become um, part of their, their weekly routine. Yeah, it just got to be, you know, so it, it, another part of the business practice that really got us to where we were 
was the fact that we had a business planning process that all employees participated in. And we gathered them together at the end of the year and then also mid-year to, to revise it if needed. And each unit had to present their business plan to everybody else at this meeting. And each unit had as a requirement of their plan uh, that they had to come up with three new things to sell and three new ways to sell them. And that was a really good uh, sort of way to institutionalize innovation. You know, we just sort of codified it there in our, in our business planning process. So that's a little bit of the story though of, of, you know, uh, Mark's Wagon Associates, why white is why group. I had a lot of help. I had some really good people. We, we hired them young and trained them. Uh, you know, we, we had an exciting company. It was fun to be there. There was a lot of, you know, cool stuff. We always had vintage motorcycles on display in the office. Sometimes I'd fire them up and ride them around inside. Uh, you know, we had TVs monitors located throughout the office and we'd have funny videos playing that I could control. Um, I got on the PA a lot, you know, every time you got a sale, if it came in over the fax or phone, we'd ring a bell and, you know, it just was all day long. Ding, 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 ding. And, and that was very exciting. It was just fun being there and yeah. we had a great group of people. And so it sounds and like a good, a good, healthy culture. It really was. Everybody having fun, making a lot of money, doing, doing good things. It, it really worked well up until 2001. Um, we had the company sold in 2001. We were down to the final throws of the purchase and sale agreement. Uh, and after 9-11, the buyer just evaporated. They pulled out. They fired the guy who was doing their development. And, and that was over. And then we had to slog it out for three more years until we sold the company in September of uh, 2004. So you basically had it sold and then 9-11 knocked it off the rails and then you had to go through the whole process again and struggled to sell it. Yeah, and that was for me very difficult because um, I had, uh, at that time, my then wife really suffered some uh, a complete and total meltdown. She had an alcohol and drug problem, prescription drug problem. She had her own business. She was a brilliant brilliant woman, but it got so bad that I could not leave uh, town. I had to take care of my kids. And, and eventually, I mean, she went completely off the deep end and, and, you know, there was not even any contact allowed uh, with my children, um, with their, you know, mother. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so that was, that was a big part of it. I, I felt like I couldn't devote my attention to the business you know, this all happened in the late nineties, early two thousands. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to sell. Although we always had a plan to build up and sell. That was, we never made a secret out of that. And uh, yeah. that was, that was the plan. So you sold it in 2004? Yes. We sold to a company called Cardinal Growth. It was a private equity firm. They immediately combined us with a magazine group they had called Mercor Media. Had six magazines in this industry. Well, in the AEC industry. And I'm not a big fan of that moniker, by the way. AEC. Um, yeah. I like AE because uh, the C is such a different business. Yeah. Different um, animal. Oh, it's, 
it's completely different. They make their money differently. The ethics of it is different. Everything's different. So I don't really like lumping them together. And, it, and I say that as somebody that owned, you know, a construction company that commercial and residential with an unlimited license. I, I just, it's, it's not a good business uh, for people to go into from the AE side. I think we're just too nice and unequipped for the whole thing, really. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so in 2004, you sold, um, you sold right. it to private equity. They merged you with a bunch of other st stuff and they took you into other, other directions than you had been prior, correct? Well, I don't know that they took us in other directions so much. Um, you know, the business was still called Zweig White um, and serve the same audience for the most part, but their business practices, they basically threw out everything we did that made us good. I mean, it's a classic case. And yeah. And that's, that's pretty typical, right? With a private equity, they just focus on the, on the dollars and whatever's not part of the dollars. It is focus yeah, they, what they could profit on. They, they took all the debt from buying us and these other two companies threw it onto our balance sheet. Then they borrowed another $6 million from a fund um, that was a, what you it's called a mezzanine lender. Um, and this, this uh, mezzanine lender gave him 6 million bucks at 13% interest for five or six years, five years. And they, their intent was to go buy other companies and they bought one, they bought environmental business journal. And then eventually they, they divested that back to the original owner as well. So that wasn't a success. And by 09, they had completely cratered. They carved the magazine group back off um, and called that Stagnito Media. And then they uh, uh, took over, the lender had to take over the company and they got both of those companies back. And then they called, they, they ran it for a year on their own. And then by 2010, they called me up and asked me if I'd come back. And, and uh, first I said no, because I already had my teaching gig here, and I was a three-quarter time faculty member, and then I had uh, Mark Zweig, Inc., which we started in 05. We, we got on the ink list in 2014, but we started that in 05 as well, and that was doing really well. And um, so I said, you know, I guess I can have two jobs, but the third, I'll only give you 25% of my time. And so, but, you know, my first charge was go find somebody to run it couldn't find anybody. I said, okay, I'll do the job. And, uh, and, and they gave me some money and a, and a ownership stake. And, uh, it, 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 of course, within like two months, I couldn't afford to pay myself what I was getting paid. Um, and then, um, so I hired the woman who, uh, uh I'm married to now. She was a friend of mine before all this through the real estate and, and, construction side of things. She was a mortgage broker and um, we were friends and I hired her as the, to, as the business manager and financial manager for, uh, you know, what's now Zweig Group. And we had a huge mess on our hands. I mean, the place was in such bad condition. It was doing 3.1 million. It owed 7 million and had $1 million in assets and was losing a million dollars a year. Okay. So you can just imagine that. And we owed money to everybody. And I'd never been in a position like that. I mean, you know, the first time we owned the company, we had the best D&B credit worthiness rating you can have. And I used to love to say to people, 
uh, who are thinking about hiring us for business planning, I'd go, run a D&B on us and then run one on our competitors. And then you tell me who you want getting business advice from. Uh, because there was, let's just say, a very stark uh, difference there. And uh, anyway, uh, Sonia, my wife, and I slogged through it all. She had the bulk of the, of the difficult uh, labor to, to get our, you know, turned around financially. And we got the company back on the success track in 2011, uh, uh, let's see, 2011 or 2010. We bought our magazine group back 2011. Uh, we, we did well. We, we found a private lender uh, at the end of 2012 that allowed us to buy the whole company back. Uh, he gave uh, somebody, benevolent individual from the AE industry who, who flew down here, gave us $2 million bucks at 20% interest. He said, I don't want any ownership. I just want to get paid my 20% interest. We paid that for 30 months. So that's about a million dollars. I think we paid another million off on the loan. And then we refinanced that with the SBA. Uh, into an amortizing uh, loan that allowed us to a 10-year AM that allowed us to buy the company, uh, you know, pay off that debt rather and, uh, and get this guy out of the picture. And of course, the interest rate was dramatically lower. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would assume so. <laughs> so, so, yeah. You, so, you, so, so you sold it to private equity. They messed it up. They threw it into a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. They, they, the lender ended up with it. The lender brought you back. Mm-hmm. You ended up having control over it. And then you spent yeah. five or six years basically putting it back together the way it was or better than the way it was when you left it. And so where, where is it now? What well, it it, you don't own it today, do you? No, I, in, in late 2018, um, I, I took, uh, did an internal sale to several other people there. Chad Kleinens, who's an engineer with an MBA, is the primary owner of the business. And then Jamie Kaiser, who's in charge of consulting, who's an attorney and also MBA, very sharp uh, people. But um, they bought the firm back and it's a very long-term purchase agreement that'll, you know, get my nine-year-old out of college by the time the thing's done. (laughs) So if I live that long, but, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so, so we are out of there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still the chairman, but it's really a, 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 a status title. I do write for the Zweig letter, although I'm no longer on the front page of it. Um, I'm, I'm buried in the middle somewhere there. And, um, I still work for a few clients. Um, they drag me in every once in a while on one of these big M and a jobs or they can't, get a hold of somebody or, you know, I, I still have a couple clients that insist I, I work with them. Um, and, and, and it's, it's really all I can do when I'm, you know, still have, uh, teaching. I'm now a full-time faculty member at the U of A and then also have Mark Zweig Inc., which is winding down by the way. Oh yeah. Let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. So in 2005, so you, you yep. sold off, uh, Zweig and right. You 
said, okay, what's next? So you went and, and started teaching something that you've, you were considering from the beginning. So that's something that you've been passionate about all along. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so you started teaching at the University of Arkansas and started Mark Zweig Incorporated. Uh, and, so, and, then, and then you got pulled back into Zweig Group. Yeah. And so you had this focus on that. So what, what um, let's talk about Mark Zweig Incorporated. Sure. What, when you left Zweig Group and you started this second company, uh, what was the intention there? What, what was your, your plan? You know, that's funny. Before we sold Zweig Group, I wanted to get into um, real estate. And I tried talking some of my fellow partners into doing it. And they're all like, eh, we don't want to do that. That's not our primary business. If you want to do that, you can do that on your own. Which I think was a huge mistake, by the way. I had an inside track to buy the Natick, Massachusetts Town Hall, which was asbestos laden. And if we had, we would have made a fortune on the thing. But anyway, <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we... I started flying. I, I had an opportunity to teach here at the Walton College one night a week, and I would fly down from Boston uh, to Fayetteville. And Fayetteville's a super cool town. I grew up in the St. Louis area. It's closer to home, closer to my mom and dad, a very entrepreneurial area. This is the, the home of Walmart and Tyson. And so that's how you ended up down in, in Arkansas. It is. And my second wife... There. Yeah, my second wife, she also was a U of A grad and, and grew up in the region. So there were a lot of reasons to come here. Uh, but it, I, I never regretted that move, although a lot of people are like, holy cow, how can you move from the Boston area to Arkansas? Yeah, big I'm change. Like, I'm like, yeah, we've even got a running water and a dentist in town now <laughs> and a cement pond. Uh, but uh, no, it was a great <laughs> move. <laughs> it was a it was a great move i love it here uh quality of life is unbelievably good no no traffic jams no smog reasonable yeah. cost of living uh smart people uh, yeah, we just moved from from new york i grew up in new jersey spent my whole uh life in new jersey my whole adult life in new york in westchester county mm -hmm. and then moved from westchester to charlotte north carolina you did the uh, same ago, July, same thing. <laughs> you did the same thing. Yeah. And it, and you wonder like, why did it take me so long to figure out? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly just right. more sane, you know? Yes. Yes. But that's how we got here. And so the first thing we did, um, we actually bought a house here before we moved here full time in 05, but, um, we bought a, a, a rock house. It was really cool. It was the guy who started our largest city park called Wilson park in, in town. It was his house. Um, his name was AL Trent built in 1935. He was on wife number four. He died in 1939 or 40. So he didn't last long after he built this house, but we bought it. We completely redid it. We added on an art studio. We had four cars worth the garage, a guest house, put an addition on it, built a pool reconfigured everything. It was super cool house. It was featured uh, various elements of it. The kitchen was actually in uh, better homes and gardens at one point, but uh, that started us, you know, uh, I said, you know, we like doing this. I mean, it, well, I shouldn't say that going back, I built my first house in 81, moved into it in 82. And I said, I'll never do another new house again. After that, we did rehabs and they just got 
you know, we, we clawed our way up the property ladder to, so the last house we had in the Boston area was 5,200 square feet on six acres on the Charles river. I had Pierre DuPont, the fifth or sixth or whatever he was as my next door neighbor. And I had the former governor of Massachusetts across the river from me. So, I mean, I, you know, really did claw up the property ladder. And I learned a lot from all that. You know, I had a carpenter that worked for me basically full time. I had a painter that worked for me basically full time. So we came here, we did our thing. We decided, you know, we could do more of this. And I started buying old houses in downtown Fayetteville that were run down, completely gutting them to the studs, fixing the floor plans, fixing them, bringing everything up to code, you know, new utilities to the street and redoing them to a super high standard and turning around and selling them to 50 to 60 year olds who were highly educated, had a lot of money and wanted to relive their youth by moving back to the college town or buying a house in the college town that they, they, where they went to school. And that took off. Um, nobody else was doing it. And people thought I was crazy that I would get $300 a square foot in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but we did. And that was because of what you did to them, because you stripped them down and rebuilt them and modernized them and made them more desirable. Exactly. I mean, I picked out everything and I, you know, I, we even did houses where I did the paintings on the wall, bought the dishes, the covers, uh, designed and built most of the furniture. Um, you know, it's just, it's something I love. And, and even though I have absolutely no, formal qualifications whatsoever to do this that business grew i hired a young architect degreed you know a designer not not uh, registered and uh, we we got uh, you know revit and and we started turning out our own plans and and before we just draw them up on graph paper or napkins and my carpenter and i would go build it that business you know it it did really well through the whole recession. Uh, one of the things we did is we took houses on trade. So if you want to buy our house, it's a $500,000 house and you've got a $300,000 subdivision house. You can't sell because there's a real estate recession. We buy that from you. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, we ended up with properties. That's how we got into the rental business. We found we could we could rent those because people had bad credit and they wanted to live in these nicer subdivision houses. And, uh, anyway, it, so you would take, you would take the subdivision house, the, the, you know, non distinctive yeah. builder, builder house. You take that as part of the sale, uh -huh. um, on the new house that had mm -hmm. full of character and was, you know, the desirable location. Yeah. And then, and then, flip those into uh, rentals and had a whole portfolio of rentals. Exactly. And we ended up where we had 67 or 68 residential rental units at our peak. And that would be condos, apartments, and houses. And then a bunch of commercial properties as well. When, when the, you know, when the financial crisis occurred in the late two thousands, banks started ending up with a lot of properties. We had a real good relationship with one bank in particular, and they, would call us when they had something they wanted to get rid of. And uh, so, you know, that, that sort of started it all. I had the, the founder of the bank come up to me one day in the lobby. He goes, Hey, Mark, he goes, I got uh, some condos. I want to sell you. I got 15 condos. I'm going to sell you. 
I said, where are they? He told me, I said, I'm not interested. He said, oh yeah, you will be. I'm going to make you such a great deal on these. You'll buy them. Four days later, I own those condos. And uh, <laughs> You had a reputation. <laughs> but that that business, you know, it it grew. And, and the truth is, and then I moved my wife out of Zweig Group to Mark Zweig Inc. This is like probably six, seven years ago. And, you know, if, honestly, it, it just grew out of control. We had so many projects. We fell into sort of the classic developer's trap where 2018, we did not have a single sale. I think we had like 27,000 in contracting income or something for the entire year. We didn't sell anything. And normally we would sell five or $10 million worth of stuff a year. But we had so many properties under construction, we couldn't manage it. So we were building apartments and houses, big houses. And it's just the timing of the whole thing. It's just a classic, you know, case. So anyway, my so, wife. So at that, at that point, you needed to make a decision, <laughs> right? You either yeah. needed, you needed to go bigger and start growing an organization or shrink back down so it's manageable. Exactly. And, you know, if my wife said, I love this business and, you know, this is my third wife, by the way. And, uh, so I don't want to end up with number four. This is it for me. So you I'm, start listening to what she's telling you. I'm too, I'm too old to do it again. It took me three tries to get a good one. But, uh, but anyway, I, uh, I, uh, you know, we just, she didn't love it. I didn't love it. So we started selling down. I mean, about 20 months ago, we said, you know, we're just going to finish things up and we're going to move them out. And last year we gave up our contractor's license at the end of the year. Um, we sold 15 million worth of real estate so far. We got about another six or so to get rid of, um, that we'd like to get rid of mainly commercial at this point. Uh, if it doesn't sell, we keep it. We just let it pay for itself. But so that was sort of the the story there of Mark's Wike Inc. I mean, we were very successful. We evolved into a property management, a contracting and development company. I never really wanted to do work for clients. We did do some and we built a house for a friend of mine, you know, a couple million dollar house out of Beaver Lake. In fact, he lives across the street from me. And I knew the guy before either of us lived in Fayetteville, <laughs> which is really wacky. Um, but mostly we didn't like working for clients because they wouldn't do what we thought they needed to do. Right. Right. You know, yeah. you, Every architect would love to Lord, do that. Lord knows, you know how that, that feels. I mean, when you know, something is in somebody's best interest, but they still fight you on it. Right. Right. Every I, day. Right. Yeah. Architect right now are listening and shaking their head. Yes. <laughs> nodding, nodding. Yes. I, I didn't have the patience for that. I, I, I learned from my old client, John Portman, that, uh, you know, being your own client is probably better than working for anybody right. else. I right. always said I can make a decision fast, you know, yeah, that's <laughs> our plan. That's our plan here in North Carolina on the architecture <laughs> side is, uh, wow. we shut things down up in New York when we moved. And mm -hmm. when we start things back up here on the architecture side, it's going to all be development and, and we're going to be our own clients, design what we want, 
just like you, design what what people say they don't want, and then when they see it, they'll pay a lot of money for it. Exactly. Right? You and I can talk a lot about that at another yeah. time. I, I would be, love to do that. I think it'd be a lot of fun, and maybe I can spare you some of the grief. Oh, that, that I, would be fantastic. Yeah. I would definitely pick your brain on that. So, so uh, Mark, what, what, where are you now? So you're selling um, Mark's Wag Incorporated, and yeah. and we're cl- selling it out, right? So you're closing that down and doing doing other things. Um, mm-hmm. what's your plan for the future, the next 30, 40 years? I, I last that long, <laughs> although my mom just turned a hundred on September 10 and still lives wow. in the house. So I you have a long in. time ahead of you. You have it's, a whole, uh, whole life ahead of you. I'm, I'm lucky, although I don't quite have the same health habits she had, but, uh, but no, I, you know, what am I going to do? I'm working full-time at the U of A. I teach entrepreneurship. I teach new venture development and small enterprise management. I love that. Um, we have another business plan on the shelf, ready to implement my wife and myself when we want. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm still very concerned about the economy yep. and not knowing what's going to happen. So, you know, to a certain extent, I, I feel good about just sitting on our cash and spending a lot of time on the back porch. That sounds like a good a good plan for the next couple of years. Wait this thing out and figure out what happens, and then uh, and then mobilize. Exactly. I mean, the real estate business. It, I wouldn't buy anything if I was anybody right now for investment property. Two years from now, three years from now, you'll be able to get whatever you want cheap. So that's, you know, I learned that right there, my friends, is worth the listen. <laughs> I, I learned long ago. You make you buy when everybody wants to sell. And you sell when everybody wants to buy. It, it's it, it's really that simple, and and that's how you catch the wave. But unfortunately, with a lot of businesses, they they build up an overhead infrastructure and a business that says we got to keep doing projects. We got to keep doing projects, and you end up doing projects that aren't your best interest. Yeah, just yeah. to keep everybody busy and keep the machine flowing and keep the money rolling in. So. Yeah, exactly. So so. Um, we should probably wrap up. We're way over an hour here. Um, I would love to have you come back and keep keep talking. Um, the I actually have two final questions for you. One is sure. our normal final question, but but this is something I thought of while I was preparing for our conversation here, and I, and I thought you might have an interesting uh, response to it. If you could have one superpower, and and you can only pick one of these three, you could have super confidence, super determination or super knowledge, which one would you pick and why? I think I'd probably just pick the determination because then I would overcome all obstacles and be successful. And I would obviously have to gain some knowledge along the way doing that. So I think I'd go with determination, honestly. I know a lot of smart people who never accomplish anything. I don't want to be one of those. That's very interesting because when when you listen to many... I'm sort of a business success story junkie. I love listening to stories and, and uh, you know, how business, which is why I loved hearing your story, you know, how it was built up, how it struggled, how it was rebuilt and all of that. Um, and I find that even in your story, determination was the thing that got you through. When you got it back, you could have just shut the doors, right? And just walked away and say, yeah, oh, everybody absolutely. go home. It's not my um, problem. Save a lot of struggle, right? And, and, <laughs> and heartache in your own life. But you chose not to. You chose, you were determined to get it back, mm-hmm. to, to rebuild it uh, and make it what it is today. And, and 
you know, uh, benefit the profession, benefit the people who are now working there today, uh, and allow you to go, you know, do the things that you you're doing today. And so, uh, mm-hmm. determination is a is a really important one. Um, what's one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think the biggest problem with my small firm architect friends, and I've got a lot of them, they refuse to focus and specialize. And that's their greatest weakness. When you don't, when you're a generalist in an area, you're going to get beaten down on fee and you'll rise and fall along with the economy. And um, I just don't think it's the way to really be good at something. So I encourage them all. You, you guys have got to start focusing on one thing and get really, really good at it. Doesn't mean that's all you'll ever be able to do, but that's what you need to have as sort of the foundation of your business. And that's going to give clients a reason to hire you over anybody else, because you're clearly the one that's got the most knowledge and experience in, in doing that. And, uh, the regular listeners to this show uh, are, are know, what, know what I'm going to say because that is something I say constantly that target market is important. You need to specialize. You need to pick a market and become the best in that market. Have an ideal client. Uh, everything else gets easier, right? And, Absolutely. Uh, and now you've heard it from one of the most successful uh, AE consultant, business consultants in the history of our profession. He said the same thing, my friends. Go specialize. Go find the thing that you're good at and become the best at it and then market your, your business on that and, and watch your, your firm grow. So, um, Mark, this has been fantastic. I'd love to have you come back. We, we, I, I, I wanted this show, this episode, to be sort of the, the history of Mark Zweig and understand where you came from and, and where you are today. Um, I'd love to have you come back and talk a little bit more about the business of architecture and, and uh, what architects are doing wrong, what we can do better. Uh, I think there's there's so much to learn from you, and I'd love to uh, to to invite you back. I would be glad to do that, and and again, I just want to reaffirm my my love for this this audience for this profession. I, I I encourage every young person I know to, no matter what their discipline is, to take a look at the architecture and engineering industry because I think you're doing something that's truly worthwhile and helping the quality of life for all of us. And, uh, it, you're just amazing people. I have tremendous respect for your ability to take such complex problems and, and, and turn them into opportunities that help all of us. What do you say, Mark, to people who say that architecture is not a business to get into if you want to make money? Oh, I, I just really, hate that. I, I taught several years over in the Faye Jones School of Architecture as an adjunct. And it was, my class was for fifth year students called everything they don't usually teach you in architectural school. And I would drag in very successful architects like the Jonathan Siegels of the world or CEOs of companies making $7 million a year, because I just hate that. I think if you, sure, if that's what you're programmed to believe, you'll never make any money. Right. But certainly not the case. Yeah, uh, architecture is a, uh, it's a business, right? And yeah. business is a game. You learn the rules, you get good at those, those rules, and you can make money. Well, you've said it yourself. I mean, you know, everybody should be making at least a 20% bottom line after you pay yourself. And 
you know, you can do that if you just do some simple things like match your overhead to your workload. You know, (laughs) it's sort of fundamental. Simple economics. Yeah. yeah. And don't spend money on stupid stuff. And I hate to say it, but architects are usually horrible money managers that tend to live beyond their means. I know that's a huge generalization, but it's true. Yeah. Well, I would love to have you come back and talk more about the business side of architecture and how we can be more successful. Uh, You and I certainly are aligned on that. Um, and you've been doing it for a long time and I would love to, uh, to pick your brain and, and understand how we as small firm architects can learn some of the things that you've been teaching larger firms for many, many years. Good. Let's do it. All right. His name is Mark Zweig. It's zweiggroup.com. It's Z W E I G zweiggroup.com Mark Zweig.com for Mark Zweig incorporated. Um, you can check out his blog. He's, he writes every week for the Walton School of Business uh, at the uh, University of Arkansas, walton.uark, so it's U-A-R-K, uark.edu slash insights, walton.uark.edu slash insights. We will have that uh, link and all those links on our show notes, so just go to the show notes and everything will be there. You can also connect with him on LinkedIn. Let him know that you heard him here. You heard his story at Entree Architect Podcast. Um, Mark, this has been an honor. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, thank you, Mark. You're doing a great job for the profession. Access the show notes or share this episode with a friend with the link entrearchitect.com slash episode 373. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. You should go check it out at gablemedia.com. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. We have ready-to-edit business resources for architects. We have live monthly training for architects, business training, uh, a supportive architect community on Slack and Simple Systems. That's our new business system, uh, business system program developed for small firm entrepreneur architects. I've heard for years that architects, they all know that you need systems, right? You need systems, but you don't have time. Well, we're building them for you in the Entree Architect Academy membership. It's called Simple Systems. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership. Our next Entree Architect Academy expert training session, that's our monthly webinar series, will be construction law attorney Jason Lambert, and he will be teaching all about property liens and how architects can use liens to protect themselves and leverage them when you need to get paid. This is a topic that I didn't know very much about until I started talking to Jason about it. I didn't know that architects can also leverage liens to get paid. This is Entree Architect Expert Training Session scheduled for May 5th, 2021. And all live expert training sessions are include, included in the Entree Architect Academy membership. So every month we have live training like this one. And all you have to do is access the membership. Actually, all of our trainings are there. All, there's like 60 or 70 of them there. I don't know. I lost track of how many there are now, but there are dozens of these expert training sessions recorded and available to you in the Entree Architect Expert Training Session archive. 
It's all there. Everything that you need to build a better business, come join us, entrearchitect.com slash join. If you're not a member, you should be. entrearchitect.com slash join. Be well, my friends. Be happy, healthy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. 
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.